Hello, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, a weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C. covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. Sarah Roach is a staff writer here, and she has been reporting on Adderall users for the last couple of weeks, and she's here to talk about the stories that she learned. Thank you for having me, Meredith. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you started to look into this story? So I was looking at some national trends um, by the Addiction Center and um, by other websites that reported on Adderall misuse among college campuses, and I found that Adderall misuse is actually more prevalent on college campus um, than it is in any other environment, more than it is in the workplace, more than it is in even the high school environment. And I heard of some studies being conducted at GW by a couple of PhD students. Mm-hmm. Um, they were m- measuring the prevalence of Adderall on GW's campus. So I wanted to look into that as well and hear some firsthand accounts from students who misuse it as well. So was it easy to find people to talk to? It wasn't easy to find people to talk with because it's not necessarily something that people talk, talk about and definitely not something that they would want to talk with me about. What about the college environment made it so stressful that they had to use this prescription drug? Well, the college environment sort of fuels this perception that it's okay to misuse Adderall, even if they didn't even have the idea in their head beforehand that they were going to do it. One student said that when he was in high school and going from high school to college, he said, I would never misuse Adderall. I'm not going to be one of those people. But he went on to say that it's sort of this expectation here that you misuse it and at least once in your time at GW. Did you talk to any people that were not misusing the drug and actually needed it for some kind of condition? They said that they could see why it's so prevalent and I mean, a couple even said that they've been asked for Adderall um, from their friends and from like random people in their dorm building, but they just primarily use it for their own purposes. But on the other hand, the students that I've talked with said that they get it only from someone with a prescription. So we know that that is basically where they're getting their Adderall from. And I know that you talked to a lot of medical professionals for this story as well, so what did they say is the danger here? I talked with some experts in the clinical field and they said that a lot of the dangers are short-term, but the the ultimate long-term effect and danger is that you're going to be hooked on Adderall. And when you get out of that college environment, there there are tests to see whether or not you are on this sort of drug and if you're not prescribed to it, then oftentimes you're not going to get the job. I talked with PhD student Brienne Molloy, who is conducting studies at GW, measuring the prevalence of Adderall misuse and the reasons for its misuse, and here's what she had to say. So we know that um, the college environment has a lot of academic and social demands, mm-hmm. and these might be higher at GW. So. Students want to excel and do well in their classes, but they also want to uh, maintain a good social life at the same time. And so they might turn to uh, misusing prescription stimulants in order to achieve that because they think that that's what will help them. She said that she found students actually perceive that a lot of their peers are misusing Adderall when in reality only about 12% 
of GW students reported that they misuse Adderall at some point in the past year. When you were talking to these people who are using Adderall, what did they say made them want to start taking that drug? They mainly said that the drug is so accessible and they almost like have it at their fingertips. Like they could just walk down the hall and ask someone with a prescription to lend them some of their pills and just like that they have Adderall. So they basically said that even if they didn't even have this like idea ahead of time that they were going to misuse it, they said that it was so highly accessible and it's so helpful, especially when you're in a time crunch, if you're procrastinating work, if finals or midterms are approaching and you have all of these exams and these papers that are just piling up, that the Adderall just takes off that pressure and it takes off that anxiety that you're not going to get the work done on time. So are they using like regularly, like once a week, or are they using just during exams or midterms? These, um, it varied um, based on the student that I talked with. A lot of them said that they just use it during midterms or finals. Others said uh, the, some of the older students that I talked with, some of the sophomores and juniors, said that they use it um, consistently maybe once or twice a month throughout the semester rather than just during these big exam periods. But when I talked with some of the students that have prescriptions, they said that they're oftentimes at a disadvantage from their peers who misuse it because they need this to stay quote-unquote on, on par with their peers. Thanks for talking to us today, Sarah. Thank you for having me, Meredith. Thanks, Meredith. I have Matt Dines, our contributing culture editor here today to talk about a story that features some of the Adderall dealers on campus. Hi there. What did you actually do for like the reporting process? I interviewed six dealers of different kind of relationship to the drug Adderall. Some of them took other drugs in the past. A lot of dealers were, I mean, only a few dealers were selling other drugs. Most of them were people who were prescribed and selling Adderall. That's interesting. So most of the people that you talked to like hadn't sold any other drugs. It was just Adderall? Yeah, I think a lot of people were encountered by a friend who had at one point wanted the drug to, I guess, study for an exam or, or take on midterms, and that that spiraled into a kind of like very light business for them. I don't think they would originally have intended on selling if it wasn't for the student population's kind of pressure on them to do so. But you did find some people who were selling other drugs as well? There were less people selling other drugs, but I would say that these dealers had different, at least one of them mentioned having different intentions when they were selling the drug. He was really saying that, you know, it was something he didn't take himself and that he saw a market on campus to get it from an excess of his friend. So there were other people who, you know, there, there were people there who weren't prescribed, but it was few and far between. And these dealers who sold other drugs were selling cocaine, shrooms, weed, like on occasion, and most of them weren't dealing anymore. Going back to the Adderall, what, where were they selling it on campus? Like how much were they selling it for? I would say that most people were selling for like lower dosages for five to eight dollars and higher dosages 25 milligrams going for eight to fifteen dollars there were a lot of cases in which people admitted to giving away at a discount or for free friends of theirs roommates close friends even a group chat was mentioned 
Generally, I would say dealers were marking down their prices for their friends because honestly, they didn't get into the the business to make a profit anyway. And they were really getting into it to help out friends that they knew they could share their wealth of pills um, to these students. And I know you interviewed six different students. Were there any anecdotes or particular stories that stood out to you? So I got into a lot of market details with the dealer that I interviewed, and we were kind of breaking down numbers-wise in his personal experience as to how there's not a lot of money to be made in the Adderall scene on campus. Here's him talking now. His voice has been altered to remain anonymous. The profit margins in Adderall are worse than every other drug, except weed. And the supply is artificially constrained by the government. So the supply is low, but it also doesn't fetch a super high price. So it costs a lot, doesn't sell for that much, and there aren't that many. So it's definitely the worst drug market to be in. And I know that Adderall is the most well-known of study drugs, but there are other drugs out there that do similar things. So were any of the students taking or selling those? So yeah, there was one person who, since she had been prescribed study drugs from age 15, had taken three different prescriptions, and she had a lot to say about some of them. Here she is, and her voice has also been altered. Like, was prescribed Vyvanse and Concerta and Adderall, and I, like, would use, like, like, if I had a test or something, or I really wanted to focus, I would take them. But, um, honestly, it, like, makes you feel so high. Like, some, like, some of them just, like, vitamins, like, make me feel like I was on coke. I would just, um, pretty much, like, after, like, a month of using it, I just, like, sold everything because I, like, would not take it. She just didn't want to take it anymore, or why did she sell it all? Yeah, I think it was just too intense for her, and she saw a market where other people might have wanted it. Well, thank you for coming on, Matt. Anytime. This past Saturday, thousands of people gathered in front of the Lincoln Memorial for the 2018 Women's March. I was there with Meredith, and we were covering the march for the Hatchets Snapchat story. This year's march was inspired by the march which happened last year around the same time, which was right after the inauguration of President Donald Trump. And that march had millions of people worldwide in attendance, and in D.C. it was about 1 million, maybe a little bit over 1 million people compared to this year's march, which was a little bit more intimate. For last year's march, they had to close off multiple blocks of DC streets. And for this year's march, it was mainly just condensed to around the reflecting pool in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And last year as well, it was also quite a bit colder than this year. This march lasted from about 11 in the morning, and then people actually started the marching process around 2.45 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. When we arrived at about 10 o'clock in the morning, there were a few hundred people already starting to gather, and they had various signs uh, saying things about either Donald Trump's administration, maybe saying something about the feminist movement. A lot of signs had to do with the Me Too movement and also the Time's Up movement, which have been pretty prevalent in the media right now. Also, a lot of the spectators and demonstrators were wearing pink hats like they did last year with the little cat ears called pussy hats. And many of the demonstrators were also starting chants. A lot of them included lock him up. Another one that we also heard last year as well was hey, hey, ho, ho, Donald Trump has got to go. Those were among other chants that 
followed after the main speakers. There were several speakers who spoke in front of the Lincoln Memorial before the march actually started, and one of the more noteworthy ones was Tim Kaine, and most people would recognize him from being Hillary Clinton's running mate in the 2016 election. We spoke to a few people attending the march, and several of them were returning, but a lot of them were newcomers and said that they had wished they had attended last year's march, but were happy that it was returning to DC this year and that they could finally attend. Many of the demonstrators were college students, but there were also several families in attendance, so there were more younger kids there with their moms, or there were even grandparents there, people in their 70s or 80s. It was a fairly intersectional crowd, which was also similar to last year's march. A lot of the people attending also dressed up in different types of costumes, so there were people there dressed like characters from the television show The Handmaid's Tale. There were also people dressed like Wonder Woman, and I even saw one person dressed up as a witch. Meredith and I spoke with mother and daughter Melissa McCoy and Liz Vera, who were excited to be attending the march. I came here last year, and it was just so beautiful to be in this place where everyone felt accepted, so I had to come back. And I'm not necessarily much of an activist, but uh, my daughter has made me really proud of how much she steps out and speaks her mind and has such great uh, confidence in herself. Uh, and um, so I wanted to come out and share this day with her. After the speeches concluded, demonstrators were starting to get a bit antsy and started chanting, March, March. And so at about 2.45, maybe 3 o'clock, people started to head down to the White House, which is where the march ended, and people continued to chant, continued to hold signs, and stood outside of the White House for about an hour. We're here on a Saturday morning, and Kayla, I heard you had a really big day yesterday with some big meetings. Yeah, yesterday I had a meeting with Provost Forrest Maltzman and Lori Kohler, who is the current Vice Provost for Enrollment Management and Retention. What actually happened at this meeting? When the media relations person from GW called to set up this meeting, it was kind of vague, said that there might be some big changes within the Division of Student Affairs. When we got to the meeting yesterday, we found out that the DSA is kind of being overhauled and the Student Affairs Departments are being kind of combined with the Enrollment and Retention Offices. So starting in July, there's going to be a new office called the Office of Enrollment and the Student Experience, which is being headed by Lori Kohler. This is kind of sudden. What is the impetus behind this change? So Provost Maltzman was kind of saying that after Peter Kinworski left, he was the former Dean of Student Affairs, he announced that he would resign in December. And so after Peter left, Forrest was kind of saying, you know, like, now might be a good time to do some change. We have a lot of staffing changes anyways, um, or leadership changes at least. And uh, that, I don't know if that was like the impetus behind it, but that was the timing. And why are they saying this is going to be a better format for students? So Forrest and Lori were saying this would be a good move. They're kind of following in the footsteps of some other universities who have done this. So Drexel University, Syracuse University have done similar things in the past where they've combined their student experience or student life divisions with their enrollment and retention offices. And so the benefit in that, Forrest was saying, would it would make the university and the student experience a little, uh, and this is a quote, less transactional. 
And so what we were talking about there was that a student, once they get to GW, or when it, even when a student's applying to GW, they might visit one office or they might have one experience and then they go into the school and they have a different experience. And so what the new office is going to do is it will provide kind of uh, almost house all of those departments under one office so that a student only has to go to one place and it will follow a student from when they're being recruited to when they graduate. So like for continuity kind of purposes? Yeah, yeah, in a way. And this is a lot of change, obviously, so did they give you a timeline for how long this is going to take? Yes, so there are a couple elements to this. So Lori Kohler is going to oversee this transition. Over the next couple months, they will be finalizing some details about it. We're not exactly sure right now if the structure of the DSA that previously existed will stay exactly the same. Um, We had asked if the Colonial Health Center um, and the Student Rights and Responsibilities Office would still be housed under the DSA or Mm -hmm. the new office, and uh, Forrest and Lori weren't sure yet, so I think they're going to smooth out some of those details. The new office will actually be established in July. There's also a search that's being launched in the next couple of weeks for the Dean of Student Experience, a little bit different from the Dean of Student Affairs, but same concept. And so a search committee will be formed for that. The university is hiring a search firm to work with them on this since it's a national search. And so Lori said that she hopes that they find a new dean by the beginning of the summer, um, by the time they launch the office in July. Is any of this coming from like President LeBlanc and his new direction that maybe he wants to go in? Yeah, so at the beginning of the year, right when LeBlanc came to, into office, he was like, I want to focus on the student experience and that sort yeah. of thing. And in in talks with Forrest, with Lori, and also with uh, the student association leadership, um, that a lot of the things that have happened this year in general have just been geared towards the student experience. And I think that's definitely... Uh, this is definitely an example of that, like, even the title of the office includes the student experience, and Lori Kohler's new title, um, when she goes into her new role in this office, will include the student experience as well. And transactional is also, like, a phrase that President LeBlanc has been throwing around. Right, right. President LeBlanc was talking at the beginning of the year about how, uh, about the university's, you know, like, bureaucracy, or, like, that it's very mm-hmm. transactional, and that yeah. students feel like they're paying for a service instead of having an experience. Um, and that's what we were kind of talking about yesterday, was that this is kind of a shift from that, like, uh, yeah. uh, I'm coming to school and you give me a service back from, like, I'm here, I'm having an experience, that sort of thing. And how are people that you've talked to feeling about this change? Yeah, so... I have talked to a couple different people about this. The first set uh, I would talk about is the Student Association. Peak and Sydney have also talked about how the university uh, can feel transactional at times, and so they said that they were looking forward to help address that in some sort of way. Yeah, so I think we're looking um, for someone to help change the nature. I know institutional culture um, is a big thing at GW and the transactional nature that a lot of students feel in their interactions with um, different offices and administration. Um, I think we're looking for someone who's very student-centered and student-focused, someone who will support students and encourage a collective responsibility for the well-being of students on campus, um, and also someone who recognizes that we are students. Um, So I think that sometimes there can be unrealistic expectations of students on campus. Um, You see that with the pressure to get internships, um, with the pressure, you know, I think we take student organizations more seriously than most campuses. Um, And I think we believe it's important that that dean comes in recognizing the unique campus environment that we are, but also being ready to support students, being students to the full extent. And then I also talked to the head of student affairs at Drexel University where they made a similar change about three or four years ago. 
And uh, the man that I talked to, he basically said that this was a very successful model. Drexel has really improved from it and that everything has kind of been a smoother student experience since they've gone to this model. And he also said that it has actually produced like physical results. Um, he said that before this change, Drexel's retention rates were in the mid 80s. And since changing, they're now in the high 80s. Thanks, Kayla, for coming on the show. Um, keep us posted with any updates. Yeah, definitely will do. Hopefully sometime in the next couple weeks. That's all for this week. Thank you for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and featuring culture editor Liz Provincher. This podcast is produced by assistant video editor Ariana Dunham, managing editor Tyler Loveless, and assistant copy editor Emma Tyrell. Special thanks to Matt Dines, Kayla Harris, and Sarah Roach for joining us. 